So let me tell you where we're going to go today. Okay, so we are in our third week on the, the series of the Song of Solomon. And if you grab your, your notes, what we've got is this main idea. We kind of grab a hold of kind of where we're going to go we're going to go for that day in, in the main idea. Let me just share that main idea because it requires a little bit of explanation. This main idea says lovemaking is a thermostat for your marriage. And as you're anticipating a little bit, yes, this is going to be a frank discussion today. Um, the passage we're going to walk through is a frank passage. It is the wedding and the wedding night between Solomon and his bride. And so let me tell you why I've stated this way. Lovemaking is a thermostat for your marriage. Last week I mentioned the idea that there is um, three words in the Hebrew that are translated love in our English translations, in our English version. And one of those is this idea of romantic or sexual love. And so that is what we're talking about in this passage as a matter of fact, we'll get to the end of this passage in chapter 5, verse 1, and this couple have made love. And that's why we're talking about that. Secondly, this idea of a thermostat, let me just explain by way of, of analogy. Uh, my wife and I bought at one of those flood cabins from the 2013 flood in, in the big Thompson Canyon. There was a bunch of them like up there. And we remodeled it, but we had to kind of completely gut it. So we decided to do in-floor heating and kind of a different type of heating system. And so we got one of those wireless um, thermostats. Uh, that way allowed us to control and kind of monitor what's going on from a distance. And our very first winter that we had that, no one was at the cabin, but we were actually in Florida. And I got this alert like 5 o'clock in the morning that the temperature had dropped to 51 degrees. There it was. It was telling me something's not right. And so, you know, I had to wait for people in Colorado to wake up and then called the, the installer. He came over and he repaired what was the problem. And that then allowed me to reset the temperature. And the reason I use this idea of a thermostat is it really does two things. It tells you what the temperature is. It tells you the condition of your home at that point in time but it also allows you to turn up the heat. And that's what lovemaking is in terms of God's design between a couple, a man and a woman. There is an indication there of the level of intimacy between a husband and wife that's indicated by that. But also God designed it to turn up the temperature, to make things a little bit warmer, if you know what I mean. And that's why I describe it that way. So, But before we get into the passage, we thought maybe it was a good idea that you might hear from a woman's perspective. Yes. Okay. Is this on? You can hear me. So I was thinking as Nate was saying those things when you're like, what am I doing? And I'm driving to church today going, am I really going to be talking about sex again? So, but good morning. And it is my joy. And I'm going to be using my notes because I want to stay on track. Um, but it's my joy to be sharing a little bit about my journey in the sexual realm with you. It is my fear that because this is the second time I'm sharing that I will have, um, like the titles, Jumping Jeff, Bible Billy and Mrs. Good News. I'm going to be like the sex lady now in church, but it's okay. <laughs> I can honestly say that I've not always done this area very well. God has taught me much about my own sexuality and the great power, power I have to wield. Um, for good and to bring joy and to wound. Consciously or unconsciously, 
I've looked in the mirror and has not always been pretty. I've seen my conditional love. I've seen my selfishness. Especially when my four kids were small, um, I remember, you know, being willing to go the extra mile for them and their needs. But I was pretty oblivious to this big guy on the side who was also pretty exhausted and longing and hoping for me. My conscious or unconscious actions caused frustration and discouragement. But God has graciously given me those light bulb moments and just has taught me a lot and given me fresh perspectives on my husband and, and us. I have always known that sex is a good gift, but I now know even more fully the personal benefits and pleasures of being drunk with love. I think we need t-shirts. Don't we? <laughs> Now I lost my place. Um, I know how life-giving it is to my husband. I know how it makes God smile. After all, this was all his idea. So if I can encourage a few of you to ponder afresh this amazing gift of married sexual intimacy and challenge you to joyful generosity in the sexual realm, I can deal with the sex lady title. So some of the things I've learned are first, inviting and abandoning is a definite journey. For those who have desired to walk paths of purity, to not awaken love before it's time, flipping the switch is not easy. Revealing, abandoning, even pursuing him and being pursued just doesn't happen magically on the honeymoon night. Like Eve in the garden, I didn't always want to come out of the bush or into the light, and every season has its unique challenges for physical oneness. As newlyweds, it's stepping into new territory, insecurities, body image, steep learning curves. With kids comes fatigue, crazy schedules, a zillion zillion things vying for our attention and his. Later years, there may be physical changes or less libido. Through every season we must pursue and invite each other, not based on mood or earned favor, but loving as unto the Lord. For it is absolutely good and right and beautiful and fun in the safe, secure, and committed environment of marriage. Secondly, I realized we need to walk this road together, side by side, I love the definition of intimacy, into me see. Do we really see each other? It's being vulnerable. Can I trust you with my innermost feelings, my emotions, my thoughts? Can I trust you with my body? It's building that safe environment where we both can respond and receive love. I think there's no doubt that we want to love our spouse But our love languages can be so different. The emotional connection is so important for us as women. Harsh words, feeling distant, or conflict leave us pretty cold. Well, what I learned about Greg, this hunk of burning love was more like a bonfire. (laughs) And physical intimacy was number one love language, which is probably true of most men in this room. 
<laughs> Amen. <laughs> and the priority was for me was certainly different than it was for Greg. I, in fact, I self-righteously thought that my love language of communication, affection, and acts of service were much more spiritual. So God had to deal with me, and our Father is so gentle and kind. He is so for us. He made us unique for a purpose, and loving each other in the language we speak shows deep care and respect. I felt challenged in my spirit to validate and affirm Greg's love language and take an even more active role in this area. Love Greg with my whole being and be a reflection. It's a spiritual thing of God's love. His intentional, pursuing, passionate, and sacrificial love. Sounds so easy, doesn't it? No, it takes a daily choice. Don't get me wrong, I still get butterflies and I feel a little twitterpated when I look at him. But regularly tending those fires takes intentionality. But when I'm looking for opportunities to love him in his love language, he feels affirmed and valued. When his love tank is filled, I found it has all-round benefits, including for me. You want that room painted? Okay. This is not conditional love, friends. It's motivational love. It's spurring one another onto love and good deeds. I saw some smiles back there. I think she's used it. (laughs) Okay. But I want to share the things that I purposed in my heart, and I thought it would be fun to have the the drunk um, analogy. So first, D is diligent in dealing with the foxes. What are the things that steal my love from Greg, that distract, that deplete me so that he gets the leftovers? What are the things that deprive him from getting me? Is it work? Is it recreation? Is it my hobbies? Even choosing the kids over him? What steals from our togetherness? D also is a reminder to date. We both need to prioritize this. I never want to stop dating him. We need to focus on each other. We need to talk, laugh, get away. I need to be taken away, especially if they are distractions at home. I need to know and remind myself that I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. R stands for rekindle the romance. I want to be the fun, flirty, and feminine wife, which in the marriage relationship is absolutely beautiful and God-honoring. Attracting each other is right and appropriate. My body is his, and he is mine. Ladies, our husbands are under attack. They are bombarded, they are bombarded by daily sexual images that tempt them to look and listen, or lick, look and linger. <laughs> I can't read my... I want Greg to be so love-drunk, so when temptation comes his way, he not only stands firm but has a gallery of mental images of me to think on. U stands for uncover and discover. This will be brief because I think it speaks for itself, but have fun writing your unique love story. It's no one else's but yours. Be respectful and adventuresome. Communicate a lot. Deal with the obstacles that come. Don't run from them. Enjoy and be enjoyed. God gave us each thousands of nerve endings in multiple places, so let's fuel the flames. 
N stands for nix the not now and let's turn it into why not now or how about hope deferred makes the heart sick. Our husbands experience failure, rejection, and discouragement in life. Let's be a life-giving force in our husbands' lives. Let's not be one more rejection. Instead, let's be proactive in planning or looking for that window of opportunity. And guess what? They're pretty good about dropping anything and everything at a moment's notice. When life is beating them down, if they have a wife that builds them up and speaks their love language, they can feel pretty much on top of the world. And lastly, K stands for now the emotion. King of King and Lord of Lords. Commit to give God his right place in the sexual area in our lives. Let our bodies be living sacrifices for his glory. For me, that is reminding myself that I am God and my body is not my own. I am bought with a price. So glorify God with my whole being in my work, my family, my church, and in my marriage. Purpose, plan, and pray. Let's take this sacred gift God has given us, unwrap and enjoy. We have a God who is grinning from ear to ear as we do. I have to follow that. I'll do my best. You'll hear from me some things that are significantly overlap because of the truth that we've both discovered, the things that are found in his word. And so I want to get right to it, taking a look at four things that are really a mindset behind lovemaking that God has designed so that it would accomplish what he intends, to strengthen, to build, to bond husband and wife together, that they might be intimate in terms of what God has desired. And so, if you would, turn to chapter 3 of Song of Solomon. We're going to pick up at verse 6. So I'm going to describe again four things, perspectives that we should have when it comes to lovemaking. And the first one is this, that lovemaking is to be exclusive. Essentially, what's going to take place right now is we're going to observe there's a wedding taking place. I really believe that this comes strategically at a point in the Song of Solomon, where Solomon has written this thing, and we see the before, we see a turning point in their relationship, and it's the wedding. And then we see what comes later. It is a turning point. Weddings are very important. So take a look. Here we go. Chapter 3, verse 6. And she is speaking, and she says this, What is that coming up from the wilderness, like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the leader of of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him 
on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. She observes him coming and approaching, and this is a wonderful day. And anybody who can see what is taking place knows exactly who is at center stage of this event. It is King Solomon and his bride. This is a public event. There is no, oh, we're married in God's eyes. No, this is something that is declares of their intention. So a wedding accomplishes three things. Number one is this. It is a public declaration. It is standing before God and before others, making this commitment and declaration that now we are becoming husband and wife, exclusively husband and wife. Secondly, it declares a commitment and intention. They're saying we now belong to one another. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25 describe essentially what God calls us to as a husband and wife. It says, and a a man shall leave his father and mother, and by the same token, a woman will leave her father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and of course that means that she would then hold fast to her husband, and the two shall become one flesh. And that very next verse says, and they were both naked and unashamed. There's a declaration there, this is our intent, to become one before God. And in that second verse, there's a clear indication that it is to be an intimate, unique, exclusive relationship. And so then the third idea behind and purpose of, of wedding is that it brings a new definition to this relationship. What once was is no longer, and now from this point forward, it's just you and me. So any of those possibilities of relationships in the past or even how ours was defined in the past no longer continues to exist. We are now husband and wife until death do us part. And so that dramatically changes things. So whether you are somebody who looks back in the distance about a decision you made, about a spouse, it doesn't matter if it's one day, one month, one year, or 30 years, and you might question that, that is now irrelevant. What is relevant in the decisions you make day by day is this. How will you honor the Lord today with this one you have committed until death do you part? Will I honor the Lord? Will I seek holiness in this relationship? Will I continue to hope in the Lord for what he might do in our relationship? And that's a reference to a passage that I mentioned last week, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So you can take a look at that if you need to. But now we come to a fork in the road. A fork in the road for everybody in this room. If you are married, that's one thing. You're going to hear it through those ears. And if you're not married, if you're single... You're going to hear it through another ears. If you're single, essentially there's instruction here. There's things to look forward to possibly if God would have that in your future. So that's instructional. If you are married, it is instructional. And I'm going to ask you to apply these principles, maybe even today. So here we go. Chapter 4, it is the wedding night. And the second thing I want to mention about lovemaking it. In, in terms of God's design, it is to be respectful lovemaking. So now, 
what's going to happen is we're going to read through part of chapter 4, and there's going to be a lot of poetry here. And it's a little bit confusing, but again, I want to remind you of a couple things. One is that if you're wondering about what, how this poetry thing works in the Song of Solomon, you might want to go back to the very first message. We do post our videos of these messages on our Redemption Facebook page. So you might want to study that. Uh, because as we read to you, it's a little bit strange at times. So the second thing I do want to remind you of this is that everything he does say is actually a compliment. It might sound really funny to us, but uh, you know when he says some of these things, you know your your hair like flocks of goats. That's actually a compliment, believe it or not. And so because we're in a different culture, we're not going to always grasp a hold of what is actually the sense and the emotion behind of it. Trust me, those are great compliments that he's giving to her. And then lastly, I want you to notice this. This is the wedding night. And Solomon is going to begin to describe her from what he has seen already to what he has not yet seen and is about to be revealed to him. But he does this beautifully. He does this tenderly. He does this affectionately. He does this sensitively. He cares to take it slow and appreciatively. Here we go. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like the flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hangs a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, the grays among the lilies. He's beginning to describe what he is seeing, and he gets to the point where he's beginning to see and gaze at this beauty that he's married. And obviously he begins to see what all husbands long to see on their wedding night, their naked wife. What has been off limits for so long now becomes his to view, his to love, his to appreciate. And all we have to do is to read verse 6 to see the effects on him. This is what he says in verse 6. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Let me unpack that for you. Until the day breeze and the shadows flee, I want to make love with you all night long. And he says, and I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. He is saying, you know, you have a beautiful face, but right now I'm focused elsewhere. And that's where he's at. And so, like I remind you, men want to see their naked wives. God hired, hardwired us to be visual people. Okay? And even after 
decades, we still like stealing looks at our wives when they're in the closet or stepping into the shower. That's how we're wired. And so men are visual. I remember when my wife read a book a number of years ago, and she was asking about this. And the name of the book, I believe, was For Women Only, subtitle, What Every Woman Knows Needs to Know About the, about the um, Inner Lives of Men. And there was an illustration of there that a guy shared with her, with the author, about a bunch of couples going out to a restaurant. And they went to this restaurant, and an attractive server was there to, to help them wait on them. And, you know, she, you know, attended to their needs, whatever, and took them to their food and drinks, all that kind of stuff. And then it was revealed, and the guy confessed, you know, probably all of us guys knew where she was in the restaurant at all times. And my, and my wife goes, is that true? And I said, I plead the fifth, okay? <laughs> it wasn't long after that, I remember we were sitting in an airport. It was a layover, and so we're just kind of buying time, people watching and things like that. And out of the corner of my eye, I just happened to notice an attractive woman in a tight black dress. And so I did what any godly man would do, especially when his wife is sitting next to him. I began to read my book and pray that I wouldn't look up. And after a safe period of time passed, you know, I I raised my head and my wife said, did you see that woman in that black dress? What woman? And she said, I watched as she walked by. Every man who saw her just followed her the whole way. That's how we're hardwired. Men and women, you need to understand that. Because that has significant implications. Men and women as well. Let me... Let me remind you about fighting the good fight. Let me tell you what this fighting the good fight is all about. Men, you've got mental images in your head. And let's just call it you've got a file folder. Okay? You need to have but one file folder. Images of a naked woman. That should have my wife on it. That should be its title. That's it. The reality is we have, many of us, and probably most of us, also have other file folders. Let's rename them exactly what they are. They are lust, sexual immorality, sin against God, against our spouses, against those people in those images, and against ourselves, and are a huge hindrance to intimacy with our spouse. That's what they are. And so let's fight the good fight. Let's ask God to please erase any of those images. Let's ask God for strength to never fill our minds with anything else other than our spouse. So that means if you're single, you be diligent. You should have no file folders open. If you're a husband or wife, fill them with each other 
and nothing else. And that is one of the reasons why we believe so strongly as a church leadership to say, if you want help in this area and you need some type of accountability, something, an app on your, on your computer or your phone, please let us know. We've got an account with this organization. You pick the accountability partner. But let's fight that good fight. Also, the implications are for women as well. And so my, my encouragement for women is this. Dress for every man. And I don't mean dress that you get every man's attention. No, exactly the opposite. Don't give them a reason to take a second look, to want to take a second look. We're not that strong. Please help us. But just as I say to women, let me say specifically to wives, dress for every man, but undress for your man. Fill his hard drive with all kinds of wonderful images of you. Of you. Now, you may be thinking, me? Let me look. Let's, let's look at verse 7. Look at this. Look what he says next. He says, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Really? She's, she's the one perfect woman in all of history. She's got no moles and no rolls anywhere. Can that really be the case? That she is the perfect No, I think the reality is this. See, beauty is subjective. I remember Pastor Nate talking about how a pastor in his life encouraged him, when you get married, that woman is now your standard for beauty. I couldn't agree more. That's where you need to be. Again, beauty is subjective. Remember, she is embarrassed about her tan. In this culture, she wanted to show up as pale as possible. How funny that is to many of you who might, on my wedding day, I want to be tan. That's not the case for her. And if you trace 500, 600, 7 years of paintings and the standard for beauty in women, it changes. This is all relative. And so, husbands, love your wives. Love her body. That's yours. So now, I'm going to ask a question of husbands. I'm warning you ahead of time, you will want to raise your hand. Is everybody ready? How many husbands in here? He already knows where I'm going. How many husbands in here are married to a woman with a perfect body? Raise your hands, men. Amen. Now, you tell her that sometime today. And she might tell you you're a hunk of burning love then, or something like that. Who knows? But that's the reality. And so, what happens next? As he takes his time, as he's complimentary, he is drawn to her. Things begin to build. Verse 8, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. The motivation is there. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. 
And he says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. This guy is melting right before us. And he says in verse 10, how beautiful is your lovemaking. That's where we know that word is lovemaking, my sister, my bride. How much better is your lovemaking than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Things are building. Verse 11, they've begun to kiss. Your lips drink nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. I mean, they're fully engaged with swap and slobber right here. It's going back and forth. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. He's taking her in everything he possibly can. And then you will see in verse 12 through 15, he says, a garden locked is my sister. When you see that garden, it represents of her sexuality. He says, a garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. You have held yourself and waited for me. And now, you're getting ready for me. Verse 13 through 15 is a reminder of God's design. And you will see the effectiveness of this foreplay that Solomon is walking through with his wife preparing the two of them for this union. Your shoots are like orchards of pomegranates with all its choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, and with all choice spices. And then he finally says, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. He's ready. She's ready. And so, thirdly, lovemaking is to be uninhibited. We have a a snapshot of this between the two of them, of this uninhibited giving of themselves to each other. Verse 16, I'm not sure it's still him speaking. It might be actually her because of the use of how garden is. Nevertheless, we know it, she is speaking by the middle of chapter six, or verse 16. And 16 and verse 1 of 5 says this. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. She says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And then he says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. This is insight into an incredibly intimate moment that God has designed for men and women, husbands and wives, to have together. Sure, this is just a snapshot. This is their wedding night. We don't have a a big picture. We have to dig in through other scriptures to find what else might happen, but we know what happened that night. It was uninhibitedly giving themselves to each other. When I mentioned chapter 2 in Genesis about God's design for a husband and wife, that they would come together and become one, and they were naked and unashamed, we know what happens next, chapter 3 of Genesis. Sin entered the world, and that changed everything. 
that broke our relationship with God and that severely damages our relationship with others, including in the context of marriage. So from that point forward, we have to fight very hard for oneness because there's forces on the outside of the world there's also forces within us that battle against becoming one. As Sherry mentioned, we have different love languages. And it's very easy for us as men or women to say, I am willing to give of myself in my terms, but not your terms. And for the woman to say, I'm willing to give myself in my terms, but not your terms when it comes to intimacy. See, the reality is that it's very easy sometimes for a man to say, I will give my body to you, but I'm not sure if I'm going to give you my soul, my heart, and bear that. And it's much more difficult for, it's easier for a woman to say, I'm going to bear my soul, but not necessarily bear my body. If we consider Ephesians chapter 5, in that is a design that God says, or, or Paul uses to address how men and women should approach each other in context of marriage. It's a reminder that husbands love your wives. And in that, there's also the, and wives are to respect their husbands. Let me be as clear as I can. When husbands are all action and no talk, what we're saying is that I, I don't really care to let you in. I don't care to share with who I am, really. And to women, sometimes that communicates, I just want you for getting my needs met. And that inhibits intimacy. On the other side, when women say, I just wanted to, to bear my soul, but not bear my body. Unintentionally or not, we say to, to men, I really don't respect you. I don't want to honor you in this area. And this is just not important for me. So it shouldn't be that important to you. And so we have this battle about whether we'll be intimate or not. As Sherry said, intimacy is what intimacy about. Into me, see everything. But sometimes what we communicate is, into me, I don't want you to see. But uninhibited lovemaking says, this is who I am. I'm going to give myself all to you, totally and completely. And the impact of that, I think, is seen in in 5.1. So let me just read it to you once again, because I can almost picture Solomon lying back and just kind of thinking, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spouse, my spice, my spouse, yeah, there he is. I ate my honeycomb with my honey, and I drank my wine with my milk, and just say, I'm drunk with love. I'm drunk with love. Which leads me to the very last point I want to make about lovemaking. Lovemaking is to be understood as sacred. Sacred lovemaking. I believe essentially that the last part of verse 1, when it says, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love, this is attributed to those who came and witnessed this wedding. But I think this is essentially what it does is to say, this is God's stamp of approval. This is eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. 
Do it again. Bond intimate, bond intimately, bond intimately. Over and over again, this is good. God is the designer. He is the one who's created us like this. He's the one who's made it so that it would be satisfying. It would be magnetic. It would be fulfilling. And it would draw you to each other over and over and over and over again. But it also reminds us again, if this is God's design and ourselves and our world pushes us against it, we need to embrace the mind of Christ when it comes to this area as well as the Spirit of God to love unconditionally and give of ourselves when sometimes we don't get back. It's an admonition to say, I'm going to take the step, even maybe the first step to be intimate, and to love like God desires us to love. And so this service is going to end like probably no other service you've ever been a part of. And I'm going to try to find my little notes. I can't find them, sorry. Anyway, so um, you may have a note, those notes from the... No, thank you. I appreciate it. I thought I had it. So um, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to pray in a moment. And then I'm going to ask every married couple to have a short conversation as soon as I get done praying and dismiss you. That conversation will be one of two things. I'll go with the easiest first. I mentioned my encouragement is to apply this. I'm going to ask you to apply it today. So that short little conversation today is this. When? Some of you guys right now are getting out your phones for your babysitter. Okay. That's good. For some of you who go, hmm, that's really uncomfortable. Because we're not at a place. The thermostat of our marriage is not like this is going to be a comfortable thing to talk about today. On the back side of your notes, a conversation to take the next step. Instead of the conversation when... When today, the conversation maybe would be this. Can we have a conversation in the next 24 hours about our marriage? If so, when would work for you? Let's pray.